And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can be filled with the presence of your spirit in our lives because your blood was shed for us. We are no longer enemies. You call us friend. You call us daughters and sons. We are your children, Lord. We're so thankful for the relationship we have with you, Lord. And we long to be filled with your spirit, Lord. Empty us of self. Fill us with you. We thank you that your word is alive and it changes us, refines us, takes off that dross, Lord, and leaves us as silver and gold. Work those things in our life tonight as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Greet someone in that wonderful love of Jesus tonight. Good to see everyone tonight. Welcome. Um, Pastor Ray's not feeling well. Keep him in your prayers. He asked me to mention that there's a Supreme Court case around, and I think it's coming up in Missis- from Mississippi about abortion. I don't actually know too many of the details, to be honest, um, but started hearing it. Okay, yeah, I was hoping John was here because he usually knows the details, but... Uh, Anyways, uh, just pray, you know, who knows what the Lord could do with that, so. Um, So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 20 tonight, if you want to turn there with me. And uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We lift up Ray and others that are sick in the body. That, um, Lord, as one is suffering, Lord, in a way we miss them and are suffering as well. And pray that you just be with them, heal their bodies. I know it's difficult during this time and with COVID going around and everything. So just be with the body, those that are sick. We pray for this um, Supreme Court case, Lord, as they started hearing it. We pray, Lord, for wisdom for those judges uh, that would stand up. Um, and how to do it in a just and um, impartial way. And, uh, Lord, we know that that law has caused so many deaths. And we look at often, the, the, at least the world looks at what could be lost if that child was to be born in the life of the woman, uh, but they fail to see what's lost in the potential life 
that was stuffed out, Lord. And uh, Lord, but you see, and uh, Lord, you, you know, and we know this is a fallen world we live in, and our hearts are frustrated, uh, but uh, we know that you're in control, you're the ultimate judge, and Lord, we look to you tonight, <clears throat> Lord, that you would bring justice as you see fit. And uh, Lord, we pray for wisdom and how to live in this day and age, Lord, challenging times we live in, and it seems to be getting more challenging. We pray for, Lord, uh, right thinking. We pray that the scriptures would dwell on us richly as you've encouraged us. And uh, Lord, we'd be making songs and hymns between ourselves and even in our own hearts towards you, Lord. Spiritual songs, as the scriptures say, making melody in our hearts, Father. Lord, and that we would redeem the time and we'd be ready and you give us a, an open door and boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Moses, the children of Israel, this is the Exodus, this is still in progress. They're being led out of uh, Egypt, and they're 37 years in. So for Moses, this is, this is uh, let's see, 100 and... 17 and a, or, you know, almost 117 years, close to that. He's got like three and a half more years before he's 120. And this is how far he's in. And it starts off here in verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And it's just kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing of what lied ahead for the children of Israel, that Moses would soon depart from them, knowing that Miriam was his older sister. If you remember back, you know, she was the one that helped kind of suggest to Pharaoh's daughter that uh, this particular woman, which happened to be Moses's mom, would raise and nurse the child Moses, suggest that to uh, Pharaoh's daughter there, and, and thus Basically, she got to raise her own son. And now here, and she was a prophetess, Miriam, you know, but she was also one who had, you know, complained alongside with, with Aaron against Moses. And really the complaint was against the Lord as Moses had been faithful in all his houses. It says there in Hebrews, um, I think it's chapter 2. And they had complained, and, you know, Miriam was actually struck with leprosy at that point, and Aaron prayed and cried out for her, and God healed her of the leprosy. But it was a warning there to her about that sort of discontent heart that she had, and it mirrored the heart of the people, which had been, you know, the 37 years or so before, it caused God to say to them, you know, you won't go into the land, but you'll die in the wilderness. Remember... God sent the spies into the land. It was Jacob and, uh, or I'm sorry, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb trusted the Lord, said they could take the land, but the other 10 spies said they couldn't. And God said, you won't enter into the land, and this generation would die in the wilderness. Um, and so this was, I think, a sign to the people. Like, this is, and, and no doubt many had already fallen, whether they had fallen at the at the judgment of the Lord, which was what had happened, there were many that were judged because of their sin. 
and the different temptations, whether it was during when, you know, they made the idol out of gold and God judged some of them or some of them who died from the serpents. Uh, actually, that would happen a little bit later, that the serpents would come around and they were to look at that uh, brass serpent on the pole. And there were f a few other stories with, um, you know, the earthquake that swallowed uh, the people that were rebelling against Moses, all those stories. I, I kind of remember the Ten Commandments story with that one. I don't know if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, um, but where the earthquake swallows up uh, those folks that had rebelled. And so many had died already, and knowing that there was only three years left till when God would bring them into the land and that 40 years would be accomplished, and now here Miriam dies, and shortly at the end of this chapter, we'll look at Aaron dying. Um, there, there's something to just take note of here, that it's sort of like a, a, it's a turning over of that the people that had, God had said you would die in the wilderness. It's a turning over to a new generation, the next generation that God would bring into the land by his promise. Um, and that wilderness experience they had was, it was difficult for them. They were challenged through it. It was like they were stripped down to, you know, just what they could carry. They're in the desert. They always continually lack for um, the things that they wanted, right, the things they hoped for that they looked at in Egypt they thought were good things. Um, they, were, they had to be satisfied with the Lord, with his presence, with his leading, the cloud by day and the fire by night. And here they're in the desert, and, and now Miriam dies. <clears throat> and so, and I think for Moses, too, I mean, Moses had been in this even longer, right? Forty years in Egypt, abandoned Egypt for the call of God, that God had called him to go free his people. He went back, you know, he tried to help his people, and he ended up killing an Egyptian, murdering an Egyptian, to defend one of his brethren, an Israelite. And after that point, right, he fled because he was afraid into the wilderness, right? And so God took him into the wilderness. That's where he met his wife. He served, um, you know, in, in Midian and as a shepherd, basically, and lived in the desert. Um, and sure enough, after the, another 40 years, so 80 years old, that, that's when God appeared to him in the burning bush and called him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. And that's when the exodus started, right? So Moses now coming upon 120 years old. So very old, uh, you know, had been through so much with the people. Um, and we could keep going on the whole story of all that Moses had done, had been a part of, and I mentioned earlier that he and said in Hebrews that he was faithful in all his house, right? That God had seen him as faithful. So, verse 2, now here comes uh, further more of the story. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. So that same heart starts to kind of rise up again. And they say, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we may, we and our animals should die here. And, and this wasn't the first time 
this wasn't the first time that they were without water. In fact, it seems like, you know, they, that God was continually providing for them water throughout their journey. Obviously, you've got to have water to live. He was providing for them manna to eat. But it seems like back in Exodus, there was another story where God had Moses strike a rock and water came, came out. So this is, this is actually the second time that this happens. And this time, they complain again, and they have no recollection. And some of the people that are still you know, alive, some of the older folks that are still alive, remember and were alive back to that time. So I'm sure over that 40-year span that people were, you know, in the wilderness, there were many that had died off, progressively less and less, you know, because basically there were only two that were going to be going into the land. Um, and so, you know, over through, you know, through all that, they had seen the people that continued to live had still continued to see God's faithfulness to take care of them, and yet their heart was still in unbelief. They still didn't hold on to any God's promises and any of the things that God had said. And I think the, the desert, if you think about the desert, like you're, you're kind of in a survival mode, right? You're, you're stripped down to your most basic needs. I need water. I need some sort of covering over my head, and I need some kind of food at some point, right? Water probably being the most important, and then the other two kind of being equally important for survival, right? That you could get through that desert experience, whether it's to another resting point. or And so you're stripped down to your base needs, and I think that's what it can be like for us, like going through difficulties and challenges, that God can strip us down at certain points from all of the, the peripherals, right? Um, some of you guys have lots of tech peripherals. Like I was just setting up some things at home, some, some gadgets that I had that I'd never used, and they were sitting around, and I was, so I was just playing around trying to set them up. And it's like I, I was just kind of counting off all these peripherals that I got, you know, cameras and Alexa's and you know whatever and some of it's my tech background I kind of play with those things to kind of learn about them and figure them out um, but we have so much peripheral so much stuff whether it's our cars our tools or our clothes you know our wardrobes and and all of that stuff that we have it's just they're peripherals and we should think of them like that they're just they're resources if you will but that God could take away, take them away, and He could take away, you know, our savings accounts. He could take away, you know, the things that we have that we trust in, we rely upon at any point in time. I think it's really important for us to consider. Um, and He doesn't do it because He wants to hurt us. He does it to teach us and to help us to learn to rely upon Him. I remember, you know, going back. Um, actually two stories here one's a little bit simpler because I read it a lot with my kids but the story of the Grinch you know he took away all of their toys and uh, you know he's up at the top of the mountain right and he's like about to dump them off the cliff and sure enough he hears the singing on Christmas morning and it's like you know he couldn't take away Christmas because it was still in their hearts right 
And, uh, you know, all the peripherals of Christmas had been taken away. And, you know, Cindy Lou Who, <laughs> I can still remember it, <laughs> probably word by word if I started getting going here, but, uh, uh, you know, she got, she lost everything except for, like, the stuff on the walls to hang things, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, so looking back, though, in my life, like, I can remember we, I remember we had a fire in our house, and the roof burnt down off in 1990, like right around when I graduated. So I was like uh, high school. I was like 16 or 17 years old. And I remember we had that fire, and I remember it feeling like I was watching my dad go through a trial. Like it wasn't, it wasn't my trial, although it was hard in a way because, you know, my bed was gone. My, all my stuff in my room was gone. The one thing that hit me was like I didn't really have that much, <laughs> so I didn't lose that much. Um, but, but watching my dad go through it, I felt like the trial was specifically for him, like to learn that God could take away everything and, you know, that God would still be with, with us as a family. And that he, he kind of sustained us through that and provided and took care of us, even though, you know, when you're in it, you're like, what is going on? Right. And, uh, what's happening to us. It's just a real shakeup. And I think, that's minor compared to what some people go through, right? No one lost their lives. Everyone was okay. Um, but some people go through much more because death, death of loved ones is some of the hardest things we have to go through. So the stripping away, the taking away, sometimes all we're left with is him. And uh, he does it to test us and to try us and to give, get our eyes on him. And I think these are supposed to be examples, we'll look at that at the end here, is that these are supposed to be examples for us uh, to take heed to. Not, and, and God gives us both positive and negative examples, right? And though much of Moses' life was positive, this is the one, this is probably the one negative with Moses here and what he did. So let's read on here in verse um, 3, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So, you know, they're, they're sort of saying the opposite of what God had promised them with the promised land, that it would be a place of vines and of pomegranates. And it was. It's just they weren't there yet, you know. And God wasn't going to allow them to be there. Um, so they were right. It wasn't a place of that. But God was still providing for them, and he had provided them water. And he says, nor is it any, there any water to drink. So, verse 6, So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. I think it's important to note that this is also where, you know, the spies went into the land, this wilderness of Zin. They went into Canaan. They spied out the land at this very place, and it had been 37 years later that now they're back where they started, and they couldn't go in. And so, and it was the presence of the Lord that would lead them from place to place. They were supposed to, whenever the cloud kind of lifted up and started to move, so there was a, a visible cloud that would be there by day over the tabernacle, 
when it would lift up and move, and then at night there'd be this fiery pillar. And when those things would lift up and move, they were supposed to pack up the tabernacle and, mar and just follow that, that sign that God had given them, directing them where to go next. And we know that was the angel leading them in the wilderness. Um, but uh, So at this point, though, they were rested back in the place that God had said you cannot go in, right? In Kadesh, it's called, in the wilderness of Zin there. And so they went in before the Lord in the presence of the Lord, and they fell on their faces um, because they knew the people were, you know, complaining again. And they were both afraid and concerned, and they had to sort of figure out how this would get resolved. And they always went to the Lord when they, when they, when they had that sort of burden on them. So the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 7, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation of their animals, or, and their animals. Um, so God says, speak to the rock, right? Don't strike the rock. The last time he actually told them to strike the rock. And so the, the challenge here is, there's a little slight variation in how God commands Moses. Um, and so Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels. So you can start to see, as he's calling them, the, you rebels. So, <laughs> you rebel scum? No. Star Wars reference there. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, uh, you know, he, he says, he, in his heart, he's frustrated, right? And this isn't the first time he's been frustrated, um, but, um, you know, the, the, the one other time that comes to mind where he was so frustrated, he, he took the commandments and threw them down and smashed them, right, when he saw their sin. Where, you know, but yet he was the one that had interceded just before, right, for the people, because God was frustrated when he heard, you know, and saw what they were doing and, and, you know, making this idol and then telling Moses what had happened. God was frustrated and angry at the idolatry in their hearts. I mean, he had just taken them out of Egypt. He had, he had just delivered them, you know, and, and now they were creating an idol towards a god that he had just commanded them not to with the Ten Commandments? Like, it's like, wait a minute. Um, and yet when Moses saw what they were doing, like at first Moses interceded, and then when he saw what they were doing, he took the tablets and he threw them down, and it, it showed and revealed his frustration and anger. But, you know, I think God, you know, that wasn't an issue of disobedience there, right? That was an issue of Moses's frustration and reaction, right? He wasn't disobeying God by throwing the tablets, although, you know, it was kind of symbolic of them breaking the Ten Commandments, so maybe it was more representative, and God was like, you know, that's what they're doing, right? <laughs> um, but, but here, he's supposed to speak to the rock, and instead, you know, he calls out, you rebels, and I think there's this frustration in that. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And you remember, it's been 117 odd years of Moses in the wilderness. I mean, I guess he was in Egypt, but 
So, what, 77 years of being in the wilderness in the desert, basically. And 37, waiting for God to sort of let all of the congregation die, and his frustration with their unbelief kind of comes to a tipping point here. So he lifted up his hands and struck, verse 11, struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And so, um, you know, God still honors his word to Moses to bring it to pass, but Moses disobeyed in the details here, unfortunately. And immediately... Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And it's kind of a sad moment, I think, for, for, for to see that. It's like all that Moses had done, now he can't even go into the land. But he was misrepresenting God to the people. And I think in the past he had been, you know, God had frustration and he had interceded, right? Moses had sort of prayed that God, in God's frustration. But I think, you know, God reveals, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to understand fully the mind of God except for what we know in Scripture. And it says, you know, that he was angry with the people. And he's angry over their, you know, their unbelief toward him and yet what he had done, right? And I think it's understandable, right, if you look at it from either a father or a mother's perspective, like you invest in your child and you teach them something and you do good for them and you put so much into them and then <laughs> in one moment they can just say something or do something to, to make it feel like they don't appreciate one thing you did for all that time you spent on them right so you can understand the frustration if you've been through that at all and experienced that at all it's it's extremely difficult and so you can see that with the lord and his dealing with the sinful hearts of man and and yet he continues to strive, and he raises up uh, men to be standing the gap, right? And he himself, of course, he himself came and died in our place, right? So he's the ultimate intercessor in that he died for all of that, and he took it all on himself, right? But Moses here is misrepresenting God's character to the people, and I think in that disobedience, it's like I started thinking about it in the in the negative, like if God did allow him to go in, like, and so Mo, it would it would make it seem like God was angry with the people and he was just you know super frustrated with them. Where the reality was, God loved them and He loved them unconditionally, and it made made me think like, okay, what if what if Jesus mischaracterized the Father when He lived? On this earth, so you know, let's say Judas, you know, comes in into the Last Supper, and Jesus is sitting there, and Jesus fully knows what Judas is going to do, and he's frustrated, and he's just like, "Get out of here, you traitor!" Right? I mean, that would just totally change the way we look at Jesus, and because when we see Jesus, we see the Father, right? It's sort of like, you know, it's just a mischaracterization. Now, Jesus is God. And he is, you know, he's the image of uh, the invisible God, the express image of his person. And he lived a life that was always pleasing to the Father. But Jesus also did experience the same emotions and frustrations with the Pharisees. But how did he treat him? Treat them? He continued to speak truth to them and love. 
and he didn't allow them to kind of trap him in what they wanted, uh, but he spoke the truth to try to get to their heart, and some people he got across to, like Nicodemus, for example. And in his patience, he tried to endure the hardness of the Pharisees. But, well, so what if Peter, after he had denied him three times, um, you know, what if Jesus, the way that he treated him was, you know, like over after Jesus had resurrected, Jesus restored Peter, but what if he, he said, you know, you can't be one of my apostles anymore? Like, it changes everything the way we look at Jesus, right? Um, and I think with Moses, although Moses, again, God saw him as faithful in all his house, he was still a man, and he still had the same foibles and weaknesses as us, right? And I think here we see that, like, taking out something on the people to try to correct them the way that Moses is doing here, sort of bringing the rod down on this rock and his frustration, like that never works to change the hearts of people. Grace is really the only way that people's hearts are impacted and changed. And that's why Paul says, you know, that God has given us more grace, you know, grace upon grace. Um, And I think this is a revelation to us, I think, in many ways, like just, you know, as you compare Moses and Jesus, right? And, and in Hebrews, that those, some of those scriptures I was referencing there, you know, it actually says how much better is Jesus than Moses, right? And, uh, and I think for us, like so many, so many times we treat people And how we react to, you know, their their sinfulness, really, because this is sin in the people's part as well. But our reaction to the sinfulness of people it makes me think of the, um, you know, the prodigal son and his brother who looked at him with such disdain, right? And I think we can treat people like that, or we can, you know, when things aren't going our way, we can kind of bring the hammer down, right? And we don't reflect to our kids or, you know, people that we're ministering to in a church, you know, in, in, in terms of leadership as a pastor, or, you know, maybe it's an individual we've been ministering to and we're just getting so frustrated. Like, Paul encourages people, and, and others do as well, other the apostles. It's like, you have to endure hardness like a good soldier. You have to endure it. The, the, the failures of people, right? And when we try to bring down the hammer on people to change them and conform them to what we think the image of Christ is, it's like it never goes the way we want it. And uh, so we, we, have, uh, uh, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit for that work in others. And it's so important because we can want people to look a certain way for our own benefit. That's how ministry can be. You can want people to look like Christ, because you want to look good in your ministry you're doing, or, you know, but it's never upon us. It's never on our shoulders to change people's hearts. All we have, we have to endure and try to be the best reflection of Christ. And I'm reminded of that with my own kids. You know, it's like, that's when the real emotions come out is when with your own family and with your, your spouse and with your kids, that's where the weaknesses show up. And God uses testings like the wilderness 
um, and in different ways to bring these things out in us. And uh, I think it's important for us to recognize these things. So, um, so yeah, Moses is not allowed. And God was, God was uh, I think di- there's a disappointment there. But at the same time, he knew that the flesh could never bring someone into promised land. And that lack of faith for Moses was, was what stopped him from going in. Whereas, in contrast, the faith of men like Joshua and Caleb is what brought them into the land, ultimately. In verse 13, this was the water of Meribah, because, and that's the Meribah of Kadesh, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them, or sanctified among them. And how was he sanctified? Well, he did this incredible work, despite the fact, it was a miraculous work that God did there, despite the fact that they were full of unbelief, and despite the fact that Moses had been disobedient, um, he still was shown to them as holy and righteous and taking care of them as he promised he would, right? And that's the thing, too, I think we learn, is sometimes we miss God's promises the promise of the promised land for Moses, but he's still faithful to us, right? Um, it's, this, it's this weird thing that can happen in our lives. Like God still shows himself faithful to us and what he said he was going to do, and yet we still miss a promise that he had promised because of our failure. Um, so... Verse 14, we'll, fin- we'll continue reading here. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, and thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. So it's at the south part. You know, if you think about Israel, right, on the western side and the southern southwest side is, is desert, but that's where Edom is, and that's where Esau, you know, ended up going and dwelt there, and Edom was the descendants of Esau. And so they're down there in that southern part, and they're unable to go up, and so they have to kind of go around. And it's like they're still stuck in the wilderness. Um, so, and when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel. I read that. Verse 17, please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Um, so they want to go through there, but the reality was it wasn't yet time because not everyone had died, right, that from the previous generation. There were many that had still, you know, that were children and weren't sort of guilty of the sin of their fathers and mothers, but there were still those that were alive that were guilty before the Lord and that w- were told they would not be able to go in. Um, so... And they're like, well, we just want to go through the land. You're, you know, you're related to us way, way back, all the way to Jacob. Um, you know, Jacob and Esau were brothers. 
and so you should let us through, you know, and God's delivered us. God's with us. You should let us through. But then Edom said to him, verse 18, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway, and, I, and if I, I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand, and thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. And so Israel turned away from it. I think it's kind of interesting here, too. If you remember over in Hebrews, it talks about there was a root of bitterness with Esau, and it's almost like it's been passed down. You know, there's this, um, that root of bitterness, and it all started with that disobedient, idolatrous heart that um, Esau had, and that he was, you know, envious of the blessing, but didn't want to surrender himself to the Lord. And so Jacob received the blessing, and he was frustrated, and it became a root of bitterness. And you kind of see that come out here. But God's also using it as a way to chasten his people. So God uses all things for the good. This is actually for the good of his people. It's both fulfilling his promise, but also that God would eventually show his faithfulness to that younger generation to bring them in the land. They just had to wait a bit longer. And he would show his faithfulness to Joshua and Caleb as he had promised them that they would see the land. So now the children of Israel... Oh, one other thing with this. You know, I think God... You know, God revealed over in Hebrews chapter 3 his response... Um, towards the disobedience, because I mentioned it happened many times. So over in, if you just jump with me to Hebrews chapter 3, um, and the fact that they can't go in here. In verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, chapter 3, verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. We've been, we've been talking about that, reading about that. And therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Um, so we see that frustration that the Lord had and the, and the wrath that he had of, uh, over those unbelieving uh, Jews. And I think the part of it was that he had done such incredible miracles. And so when truth is before us and evidence is before us, I mean, they saw the Red Sea split. They saw all of the plagues on Egypt, that God delivered them with a strong right arm. And the whole idea behind that is that God made himself abundantly clear that it was him doing it. And all of Egypt knew it. All of Israel knew it, and all the lands around him knew that this was something no one could do. It was an incredible, miraculous thing. And yet they were still unbelieving. And so that was the, the, what caused God's wrath to be sort of fuming there. And beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, which is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the encouragement to the Hebrew believers was, you know, basically 
you're in a test right now because they were being tested. <clears throat> they were sort of going back to their Judaism and sort of forgetting who Christ was and the significance of Christ, going back to the sacrifices, and they forgot why they believed what they believed to begin with. And so there was a danger in that, and he's warning them several times. He warns them that, you know, if you, if you do those things and you go back, you may not even be a Christian, right? It, it, that's kind of the warning there. It's like you can't go back to the sacrificial system and trust in that. It doesn't do anything for you. Um, <clears throat> so if they continued in that unbelief, but he was encouraging them, warning them and encouraging them to know, you know, put your eyes back on Jesus and trust in God and his promises. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about because as they experienced suffering, it became really hard, and then as they went back to Judaism, it became easier. It was like they were in the midst of a battle, and they had to continue to plow forward and trust the Lord despite the hardship, but they were going back. And, and a lot of it was caused by the unbelieving Jews bringing persecution on the believing Jews, just like Paul experienced continuously. We're reading in the book of Acts. Like, it's going to get more intense. They're going to be basically going all over you know, the Roman Empire, pursuing Paul and, you know, trying to frustrate what he's doing in the Lord. Um, so back here in, in chapter 20 here, in verse 22, now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to, the mount, up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. I mean, Aaron's probably three years older than Moses, so he's like 121-ish um, at the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. So he was the high priest, and you know he was the one that had spoke for Moses on Moses' behalf, even before Pharaoh... And no doubt he had a continued role there. But the high priest was an important role. It was like he would go in and offer the sin sacrifice for the sins of the people. Moses was sort of like the teacher that he taught. He would get the vision from the Lord. The Lord would show him what heaven was like. And, this, and, God, and Moses would make the replica of heaven, you know, with the tabernacle and all that and tell the people what to do regarding how God had ordered things, both ceremonially, ceremonially, morally, and, you know, with all the feast days, all of that stuff all came from Moses, and Moses taught the people. And then Aaron was the one who kind of executed that, right, and, and, and performed it. Um, but still, once again, with Miriam's death, now Aaron's death, it's sort of like this, they're almost done with the trial, but they're also this, there's this great loss, right? There's this loss of their leaders, and there's sort of a question mark, well, what's going to happen, Right? These are the people that were with us for so long. Um, 
And I think it's kind of interesting too. It's almost like a shameful event, right? Moses, or like, you know, Aaron being taken, the garments being taken from them, from him and given to his son. But at the same time, that's what was supposed to happen according to law, right? That that would be passed down. And, uh, you know, the priesthood was something that was passed down from Aaron to his sons and from his son's son, or from his sons to his son's sons, right? And all the way down through generations. Like, not every Levite was a, was a priest. And not every priest was a high priest. And so it was this very important role. Um, and, and so this was showing, you know, God taking that, that role and moving it to Aaron's son there. And then Aaron died. But it's kind of a closure. I think Moses will eventually end up dying as well. But there's kind of this closure that's happened. And let's jump over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because there's really a commentary on this whole section that I think um, gives us an even better picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there's parallels between the church in Corinth and the, the children of Israel there. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. So they, you know, going back, they passed through the Red Sea. And what an event that must have been to see the walls of water beside you and realize that it was the hand of God, God controlling miraculously these things so that you and your brothers and sisters and your families, and all the way, you know, all of the people of Israel could cross over and, and basically be delivered from the slavery that they had been in for their whole lives. You know, God had taken them out of slavery. I think we, we forget that part. We always forget the slavery that God takes us out of, and we think about the good things that we had in the slavery and forget about the actual slavery itself, right? Um, Remember, they, they cried out to the Lord, and some of the times that they complained, they complained, you know, we want the leeks and the onions and the garlic, and, you know, we don't have any of that stuff. All we have is this, this manna, right? But they forget what was it really like before in the slavery. And I think that parallels for us. We forget, and we look at the good things about sin, and we forget the bad things about sin. And it should, we should, when we, we're in that moment, we should not think about the good parts about sin, like the temporary pleasure, because sin is pleasurable for a season, right? But we need to look at what are the implications of that sin? You know, what are, we need to really ponder those things um, when we're in the midst of temptation. Um, you know, what, what will we reap as a result of what we sow in that decision? What will it do to other people? I think those are the things that we need to think about. And we need to learn to do that and, and you know, be grieved with the sin beforehand that it's even possible in our hearts so that we won't go down that path. Um, and the slavery that's the result because sin has, you know, hooks. So I don't want you to be unaware all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized meaning immersed and sort of, you know, 
covered over like baptism is like the process of being immersed immersed and then transformed into something different um and you know they went with the cloud they saw the cloud they were surrounded by the cloud and it was leading them and yet they forgot and they all ate the same spiritual food that is manna like god provided the spiritual food for them that sustained them and they all drank the same spiritual drink that god was re- providing water through the whole wilderness experience. And this is where one of the things I wanted to show. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, how did Christ actually, was there an actual rock following them in the wilderness? Actually, Jewish tradition teaches that. We don't know that, right? That It could have been that there was a rock following them. That would be kind of weird, this rock rolling around. But hey, you know, you never know. There was a donkey that talked, <laughs> so... Um, it could have been that there was this stream that was always with them, and at times there would be a testing and it would dry up. It may just be that when there were rocks that would, you know, God would provide miraculously water in these rocks like he did back in Exodus there the first time, and then this time that we just read about, that God would continuously do this sort of provision of water when they were at this resting point, and he would do that in the same way he would provide manna. He was continuously providing through this rock. But the rock, we know for sure, was a type. It was, it actually says here, it was Christ, right? So Christ was with them in the wilderness in some form or fashion, whether it was the angel of the Lord, you know, the pre-incarnate Christ that would appear to them or appear to, to some of the Israelites in the Old Testament, like Abraham or, you know, Samson's parents. It says the angel of the Lord, right? Um, whether it was that or whether it was just that Christ's presence was with them somehow in this, you know, miraculous event with the rock. Um, and it's hard to say because we weren't there and we just got to kind of piece the scriptures together and kind of fit within that framework um, like this verse. Uh, but anyways, he was with them. And it was, a, it was for certain the type of him that the gods, the water that God provides through this rock is like, you know, the water that God provides us through the, his words, spiritual food for us and sustenance and helps us to survive. But, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Most being 99.999%, right? Where there was only two people that God was pleased with out of thousands and thousands of people. Um, and so most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And it just makes you think that all through the wilderness, as they went around and around, people would pass, they would bury the bodies, you know, outside the camp and all through the wilderness, those bodies were left there. Right. And just kind of a, a sad picture there. Um, but a warning nonetheless for us. So he says in verse 6, now these things became our examples to to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And that harkens back to, and I don't think it's just, you know, that they lusted like, you know, I want water, right? There was actually a lust for the things of the world and the, the nations around them, right? When they went and they had a idol made, there was a desire to be like the nations around them. They made it out of gold. They made it to represent 
the God that they imagined in their minds. And there was a sexual act that went with it oftentimes, and that's what they did. And so God judged them in that. And they became idolaters in that. And so they, they lusted after the things of the world. I think it's important, like covetousness, covetousness comes when we see our lack of something and we see someone else with that thing. It's like, we want that, right? And we have to, know, we have to remember that, like, with God's commandment, like, when God's commandment comes, don't do this, don't do that, it actually reveals in our hearts, like, a desire, a, a drawing to it. Like, because that's a, the sinful desire is, it's like it craves the thing it can't have from God's commandments. It's like when Eve saw that fruit, there was a craving and a desire for it, right? And then the, there was a deception aspect to it, but the, the fruit was desirable to her, right? Despite the fact that God said not to eat it. So that commandment, you know, and when, it's, when we yield to that sinfulness, right, and disobedience, it bursts sin in us. And, um, you know, that, that lusting can go further, and we want more of the sinfulness and the forbidden thing. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And that happened later on as they intermingled, you know, actually later on in Numbers, it talks about this, that, um, that Balaam, was like told by Balak to curse the Israelites and he, he wouldn't do it. And he, instead he blessed them, right? Because he, he had to do what God told him to do as a prophet. But he did tell Balak their weakness for money. And the weakness being, okay, go and intermarry with them. And then they'll want the gods that you have and they'll, they'll start to follow after those gods. And that's what he's talking about here. It's like, so, so Balaam used his his insight and whatever and and sort of disobeyed the Lord like he shouldn't have done that right um, but he did it anyways and God saw you know he was like a false prophet he was using his the whatever power God had given him which is weird why would you give him that Lord that's kind of a question in my mind why would you give an evil man that but you know we don't fully understand why God does this but it does sort of show like, maybe it would have came about some other way. I don't know. But Balak did what Balaam said, and sure enough. And that's why judges happen, because they keep going after the gods of the nations around them. Then God would bring, you know, judgment on them to kind of get their attention by all the, the nations around them conquering them. And then they'd cry out. God would raise up a deliverer and deliver the people. And that cycle kept happening, right? It was only when they, they were walking by faith, like with under Joshua, they were going in and they were conquering, conquering, conquering. And it was conquering that God had ordained because those were wicked nations that God wanted to judge. I mean, wicked is beyond words. It's hard to describe what those nations were like. God was judging them. And so, but faith, again, faith versus unbelief and the contrast, judges versus book of Joshua. You can see that contrast in those two books. 
And anytime there's that, that sexual idolatry, it always leads to slavery. So verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And he just kind of iterates through, you know, all of the different things where they had tempted the Lord. Nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admon admonition. That's why we're reading this tonight. To encourage us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We should be circumspect. We should be considerate of these things. Like if we just walk around and do whatever we want when we want, it's like, you know, it's not a witness, first of all, but it's like you're in danger of, you're endangering yourself. And actually in 1 Corinthians 11, they were living like this, this sexual idolatry. They were like the, Corin the Corinthian people, and they were just living in sexual idolatry. And you see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But in 1 Corinthians 11, they're taking communion, and their hearts aren't repentant, and, and some of them are dying. And, you know, I don't understand why some believers die, but I think sometimes it's like this. It's like, you know, you can't say every believer that dies, you know, it's because of their sinfulness. No. But in some cases that people actually die, according to 1 Corinthians 11, because of their sinful heart. And we see that uh, in the scriptures. And he's saying this could happen, right? So we need to walk fearfully. And I think it's just when we, when we just kind of go about our lives um, and do whatever we want, God can take us because it, it's both a bad witness for him, um, toward, or of him, but it's also, you know, it shows the fearfulness. I think, like, you think about in Acts when God took Ananias and Sapphira. Like, it shows a fearfulness of that we were to walk circumspectly. And remember, God is patient, long-suffering, you know, this is a very rare case. I want to make sure <laughs> this isn't something that happens all the time, right? I mean, I can't tell you recently, maybe one instance in the last 10 years I've maybe seen this, but I don't even know for sure, right? How am I to judge? I'm not God. So it's a rare thing. Therefore, my, or, uh, no temptation, and this is the final thing for us to take heed of, no temptation is taken you except what's common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it and so God gives us a way of escape in these testings and temptations and he's also merciful to teach us through our failures because sometimes it's a struggle and it's a battle and it, there's failure after failure and yet God's teaching us through our you know a righteous man falls down seven times. He gets back up again, right? And, you know, he is long-suffering. But it doesn't give us, it doesn't give us a license. Instead, we're to look to him and his grace and in brokenness and walk before him in faith, trusting him. And knowing that, you know, just like in Acts chapter, I think it was 15, James warned the people to flee fornication. Don't give yourself... You know, don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols. The fornication being such a thing that was so prevalent in those days and then eating things that were idol, sacrificed to idols. It's like, think about your brethren. That might stumble them. Now, idols are nothing, but think about your brethren. That might stumble them. Um, 
And those two things, you know, don't flaunt your freedom around, but rather, you know, you give up your freedom for the sake of others, right? Uh, that was James's encouragement. And those are the same things Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians. And he's saying, you know, it's not anything that's not common. So there's nothing abnormal about temptation. We all go through it. But God is faithful. Like, so we need to look to him. And so I think with those certain things that we learn from this particular chapter here in Numbers, um, you know, there's a lot to kind of pull out of there. Um, it's kind of a sad story in a way. It's disappointing. It's like Moses misses out. But I think it's an, it's an example to us. I mean, we have to... We have to take the scriptures as they are and, and take those warnings and take it to heart because they're not, you know, they're not there for no reason. They're there for our examples. And I think we can all learn from those things. So let's pray. Father, we do ask you, teach us your ways, O Lord. We know you're merciful, patient, gracious. Help us to be the same way towards others. Lord, it's not always in us. We want to kind of bring down that staff on the rock and call people rebels and that sort of thing. But, Lord, you've been faithful and patient with us. So help us to do the same. Help us in the harder areas with, with, with our family where emotions tend to run higher. Um, but also help us with the ministries you've given us, whether it's serving people in a jail ministry or whether it's, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one ministry. It just seems like someone's going through the same thing all the time or pastoring or whatever it is you have for us, Lord. And, and serving others, whether it's family members, Lord, that haven't come to know you, just being patient with them in their unbelief and just trying to, to, to be patient with your leading. Help us to do those things, Father. We know that you're, you're with us. And, Lord, for the temptations that come, Lord, we don't want to be enslaved uh, and go back to that slavery. We want to look forward. Lord, you've, you've promised us that to whom the Son shall set free shall be free indeed. And uh, so we look for that freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all.